0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from the sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. My name is Rob Dalrymple, the pastor here at Northminster. And this morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. And as I mentioned for you that we here last week, uh, the Gospel of Luke is beating me up. Um, I guess in a good way. Just getting deeper involved in the life of Jesus and kind of going through the text again. And Jesus is going to continue to challenge us. This morning the question that we're asking is, what is a disciple? Jesus is going to have conflicts with the Pharisees and, and the religi- religious leaders. and He's, he's going to turn from them and turn to the twelve. He's going to appoint his own twelve. And he's, he's going to call them as disciples. And we're going to read the scripture in just a little bit in Luke 5 where Jesus goes out in the sea and and calls the disciples, Come, follow me. In a couple weeks we're going to continue this theme of disciples and we're going to have a a message on that that God calls us to make disciples and not converts. A convert is someone who simply once believed one thing and now believes something else. You know, you've converted them. They've changed their mind. They've come to believe something else. If conversion is the goal, then once a person changes his mind or her mind, they're a convert, and all is done. But a disciple, a disciple is someone who follows their rabbi. A a rabbi is a teacher. A a disciple begins by a conversion because the word repent, in fact, means to change one's mind, literally. And, And to become a disciple of Jesus, you have to change your mind. But that's actually just the beginning. The goal of a disciple is to be like their rabbi, to imitate their rabbi. I just realized I was going to put some slides in my in my sermon message this morning, and I forgot to do it. But uh, the pictures I was going to come up with is if you ever go to modern-day Israel and you go to the, and you go to the Wailing Wall, I won't get into the de- details of what what, that all, what that's all about. But if you go there on a Friday night, Shabbat Sabbath. Uh, begins at Friday night at sundown, and it goes until Saturday night uh, um, at sundown. That's their Sabbath. And if you go there, you're going to see all these religious groups amongst Jewish people. They all follow different rabbis. And you know what rabbi they follow by the clothes they wear. There'll be a group over here, and they're all wearing the exact same clothes. It's the clothes of the rabbi. And there's another one. that They wear these clothes, and it's, they have longer jackets. And these ones have, have hats that look like big, uh, small little Michelin tires um, and then there's other ones that, 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 you know, they all wear different hats or different jackets, but they all are wearing the same clothes as their rabbi. That's the idea. The goal is to become just like their, now maybe they're going a little bit too far. I think Jesus' answer was, I want you to be like me in my character. But for them, they want to be like their rabbi in their character and in their clothes. They walk like their rabbi, they talk like their rabbi, and they dress like their rabbi. I know it's. If that's the case, if being a disciple of Jesus means to follow your rabbi, then repentance is only the beginning of the process. Conversion's the start, and not the end. And by no means is it the end. So uh, that's all for my sermon. Um, yeah, yeah. There's something going on this afternoon that you want to get out of here for, and I can't think of what it is. Um, I'm not sure what it is, but anyways. Um, Alright, if you're new today here to North Northminster, we want to encourage you to text the number on the screen uh, and let us know that you're here. You'll get a, an electronic connection card that you can fill out and that way we'll have your information so we can use it for all kinds of particular reasons. I mean, so we can contact you when wonderful things are going on here at the church. Uh, if you don't want to do that, fill out one of these connect cards here and put it in the offering plate so we can have a record of your attendance and keep you updated in terms of how to get more involved and more plugged in. as. And if you're not aware of Ash Wednesday, it's the beginning of Lent, which is the 40 days of fasting and prayer leading up up to Easter Sunday. So I encourage you to come on the 14th for Ash Wednesday. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 5, page 728 in your pew Bibles. We're going to go through 5 in the beginning of chapter 6 this morning. Uh, let me set that a little bit of a context. One of the primary religious groups that Jesus came into confrontation with uh, in the first century was a group of people called the Pharisees. Uh, there are several religious or political groups at the time of Jesus amongst the Jewish people. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, and there's a few others, Herodians and Zealots and uh, groups like them. But the Pharisees were the primary individual group of people that Jesus comes into conflict with because the Pharisees were really the party of the people. The Sadducees, the other major group, were they were the rich aristocrats. Uh, the, the Sadducees had, had gone into cahoots with Rome. Uh, they worked for Rome, they benefited from Roman occupation, uh, and they were distant from the people. But the Pharisees were the party of the people. The Pharisees were well respected, and it's hard for us, as, if you've been in the church for a long time, you, you think of Pharisees and you think, okay, they're arrogant and they're self-righteous and they're, you know, and, and they're bad people, but that's not the way they would have been thought of. They would have been thought of as the, the, the religious group, the righteous people, the, the honorable ones, the, the guardians and protectors of the law. For the Pharisees, their primary concern was purity. Uh, Rome was in power, and Rome was the problem, but so how do we maintain purity in the midst of pagan uh, um, occupation, in the midst of pagan oppression? And the, and the way to go about doing that, and I left my phone down here. Sorry, James. Um, so I can control the slides. Thank you very much. Um, was by asking this question, the Pharisees would answer the question, who are we, by saying we are the Jews. We are the chosen people of God. Uh, for them, of course, they, they, they can create a problem um, uh, immediately. You might see it already. You might see, okay, as soon as you say we're the chosen people of God, uh, we're, we're, the, we're the good ones, then you immediately start having this elitism. Right? We're, you know, we're, we're the ones that are entitled to these things. You know, uh, we're, we're the exceptional ones. And, of course, the Pharisees began defining who the ones who are in and who the ones who are out. You think, well, we're the Jews, the children of Abraham, but for them, a Jew or child of Abraham was more narrowly defined. Tax collectors who work for Rome, even though you're Jewish, you're out. The poor, you're clearly not favored by God, you're out. Lepers, you're out. And so the Pharisees had this, this, this narrow definition of who we are, were the elite chosen people of God. Secondly, the, the problem that they, would have, that they would have would be this. The problem is Rome. Rome is in power. Now the Pharisees in each of the religious groups in the time of the first century would handle um, their view of Rome differently. The Sadducees didn't mind Roman rule because they benefited from it. Rome would would, would empower the Sadducees to keep control over the people. Uh, They would pay them off and everything would go uh, fine and dandy. So Rome worked with the Sadducees and the Sadducees worked with Rome. The Pharisees hated Roman rule. Rome's the problem. But we also recognize that if we try to do something about Rome, Rome will just wipe us out. So the Pharisees tolerated Roman rule. They did not like it. They did not approve of it. But they tolerated it because they knew that as long as they tolerated Roman rule, Rome will let us keep our temple. And purity is the primary concern for the Pharisees. And the way an Israelite kept themselves pure was by simply going through the temple. All right, the the next question is, what's the solution? Well, the solution is to somehow remain pure under pagan rule. And purity for the Pharisees was a a number of factors, including prayer and things like that. But maintaining faithfulness to God's law. Uh, The Torah, you may know it as. The Torah, the word Torah means law in Hebrew, and it refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books are called the law because they were written by Moses. And Moses is the one who receives the law. So the Pharisees looked at the law and they said, look, It's our task as the Pharisees to help you know what the law says and what it means. You people are simple people. We're the ones that are educated. You don't know the law. We do. So we're going to help you with the law. And we're going to help you see what purity is and what's not purity. So if you do what we say, then you'll be able to follow the solution, which is to remain pure in the midst of pagan oppression. Right, with that in mind, we'll enter into this, into this first century world, and, and let's give one more uh, uh, context. Jesus did most of his ministry according to the Gospels up here in the northern part of, of modern-day Israel, uh, up in the region called Galilee. Uh, in the southern part of Judea and where Jerusalem is, right over in this area here, up in the Sea of Galilee. Now, right up at the top of the Sea of Galilee, right up in there and the laser pointing, is a city called Capernaum where apparently uh, um, uh, uh, Peter, not Simon, also known as Peter, James and John, had a fishing business. Uh, Caperna- uh, Capernaum is where Peter's mother-in-law lived, we find out in the other Gospels. Peter is actually from a city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is just on the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee on the northern shore on the eastern side, right up in there. And there's a, a river known as the Jordan River that goes into the Sea of Galilee and comes out of the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea. So across the other side of the Jordan River is a region called Golanitis. And that's actually where Peter's from, but he lives in Capernaum now because his mother-in-law's there. And we suspect that Peter's mother-in-law didn't have a husband any longer. Maybe he passed away. And Peter's wife apparently had no brothers. So Peter, the oldest male now in the family, moves to Capernaum to care for his mother-in-law. Well, Capernaum's also important, not only because it's the largest fishing village in all of Galilee, Lots of fishermen are going to be there. It's also important because there's going to be a border crossing. You see, Galenitis to the east and and Galilee to the west means when you cross from east to west, and if you go up north, uh, up here to to Damascus, and you you take this highway all the way up to Damascus and all the way to the Orient, um, as you're coming across now, you're going to cross a border into Galilee, and that means you're going to have to have tax collectors. So we're going to come across a man named Matthew, also in the city uh, of Capernaum. Now, we read the passage in in Luke 5, uh, 1 through 10. Let's look again at, at, at Luke 5, verse 11. They pulled their boats up on shore, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. This is our primary definition of a disciple, by the way. They pulled their boats on shore, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. Jesus comes up to them in the morning, hey guys, bad night of fishing. Now, you don't catch fish in the morning, you catch them at night. They don't catch any fish. Hey, let's go out in the boat a little bit. Hey, drop your notes. Jesus, I I know you're like some really good rabbi and all, but we're the fishermen here. We're the professionals. We've fished all night. We can't find anything. We're not gonna find anything now, but if you tell us to throw our nets in, we'll throw our nets in. And they haul up a haul that's so large, they don't know what to do. When they get back to the shore, they left everything, and they followed him. A little while later, in Matthew in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says this. Uh, Jesus was walking by a tax collector's booth. He said, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, whom we believe is also known as Matthew, sitting at his tax booth, follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. To be a disciple means they left everything and followed Him. That's the first two fill-in-the-blanks on your outline. They left everything and followed him. And we can stop. And some of you are like, amen. (laughs) Because we need to think about this for a moment. To be a disciple of Jesus, when he comes, they left everything. And they followed him. How many of us, if Jesus were to walk in this room right now and say, come follow me. Well, let me go get my car outside and I'll be happy to follow. No, no, leave that too. Well, let me go home and get a few things out of the house. No, no, leave that too. My, my family's not here. Let me go back and get my family. No, follow me. I don't even have a change of clothes. These are, I mean, these are my Sunday shoes, and they're not really comfortable for walking around in Jesus. Surely we're going to be walking everywhere because he told me I can't bring my car. Can I at least go home and get a new pair of shoes? No. Follow me. Are we willing and ready to leave everything and follow him? Lord, we're going to stop. Because we're asking the question, who is this man? And the disciples are starting to figure it out a little bit. Peter calls Jesus master at the beginning, but Lord after he hauls in the fish. And there's so many things in our life and in our world that we hold on to. And you tell us to leave everything and follow you. We have pretty nice life in the West. Most of us in this room are not worried about where our meal's going to come from this afternoon. In fact, we're planning actually what we're going to eat for the Super Bowl. We've got it all laid aside. Most of us are not worried about a lot of things in this world. and we hold on to them and we stop and recognize this morning that you're asking us to leave everything and follow you and we're scared because we don't know what that means and we're worried but we sang earlier that we believe in the resurrection we believe in God the Father, God the Son and in the Holy Spirit, the three are one we live in the resurrection and life eternally. And yet we hold on to these things. We hold, on, we hold on to our fears. We hold on to our insecurities. We hold on to our doubts. We hold on to family and money and pleasure and power and fame And you're asking us to leave it all behind and follow you. So here we are. Amen. Matthew, uh, next couple verses then, decides, after he leaves the tax collector booth to follow Jesus, that he's going to host a party for Jesus. Now, mind you, Matthew's a tax collector. And tax collectors mean he's Jewish, but he works for Rome. Rome's paying him to collect the taxes. It's a lot easier to have a Jewish person collecting the taxes than to have a Roman person collecting the taxes. The Jews don't want to pay as it is. So Matthew now is one of the outsiders. One of the not-in club, as far as the Pharisees are concerned. So he has a a, a banquet for Jesus. Verse 29 in Luke chapter 5. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew has people he knows. And the people he knows are the outsiders, the ones that are not in the club. These are the only people that will come to his house. And he has a dinner for them. Uh, many tra- the NIV says uh, that the Pharisees complained to his disciples. Many translations will use the word grumble. And the word complaining or grumble is, uh, is the exact word used of the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, let, let me explain the context. Uh, in the Old Testament, God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through your offspring. Abraham has a son Isaac, who has a son Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become basically the 12 tribes of Israel the state or the nation of Israel, these 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes, however, go off off to Egypt for a particular reason and become slaves in Egypt. And then a man named Moses arises in the book of Exodus. And Moses is going to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, back to the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. And Moses does just that. He leads them out and they go to the wilderness. There in the wilderness, God appears to Moses up on the mountainside and gives Moses the law. But then the Israelites are grumbling down at the bottom. They're complaining, we were better off in Egypt. We were better off, we were better off, we were better off. Numbers 14 says it this way. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. and All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of Israel gathered there. When the New Testament describes the Pharisees as grumbling, and it does so several times, it's to portray the Pharisees as the unbelieving Israelites, the ones that God rescued out of Egyptian slavery brought them to the wilderness, was about to bring them into the promised land, but they grumbled. They complained. They don't like Moses. They don't like this call. They don't like this Jesus leaving everything and following him stuff. The Pharisees are the unbelieving Israelites. So it raises the question now, what we're going to see, Jesus is going to choose a new 12 here in a little bit. And the question is, why is Jesus choosing a new 12? Why is he going to choose 12? And the answer is because the religious leaders are unfaithful, unbelieving, and unwilling to follow Jesus. The religious leaders are unfaithful, unbelieving, and unwilling to follow Jesus. As Jesus says in Luke five thirty-two. it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So early in the Gospels, this confrontation with the religious leaders, John the Baptist says, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. Turn to God. And the Pharisees have said, no, we're healthy I don't need a doctor. I don't need to repent. I don't need to follow Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we'll see this confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus, and they say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, if Abraham is your father, then do the deeds of Abraham. Live like Abraham. Have the faith of Abraham. You don't. You're following yourself. You're following your own wants and your own desires. And we'll see this question arise later on. Why are you eating with with tax collectors and sinners? We'll see this in chapter 15. Because I have to, Jesus says. That which was lost has been found. Those who are sick are made well. We have to rejoice. But the Pharisees will grumble. Verse 33 of chapter 5. The Pharisees said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. John the Baptist. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But you guys, you go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. We read earlier from the book of Hosea. Hosea is this great promise of prophecy. I, I, your God, I will be your husband. You will marry me. You'll be the bride. I'll be the husband. God will be the husband of Israel. And Jesus now himself says, I'm the groom. God has come to marry his people. And because God's come to marry his people, there's no fasting when the bridegroom is with him. It's a party. It's a celebration. Let's have a good time. There'll be time for fasting when I leave. And by the way, a side note here, this is the reason why we don't talk about fasting enough in the church. You know, when we preach to the Bible and we preach to the gospel, the disciples don't fast. Because the bridegroom is with them. And so fasting doesn't come up very often, except when the Pharisees complain, you're not fasting. And then we mention fasting, but only in passing. But Jesus himself says, when I leave, then they'll fast. And when you read the book of Acts, which describes the life of the church after Jesus, they're fasting. Right? Fasting is an important component of the Christian life. Now, fasting is this way of saying, I am willing to leave everything and follow you. In fact, I'm going to go without food for a day. Or half a day. Or a part of a day. Or I'm going to go without the food that I like. And I think you can fast by eating fruits and vegetables and just kind of making sure that you're... That's fine. Whatever you want, to fast and go without to say, Lord, I'm leaving everything to follow you. It's just a great reminder. So I would encourage you to partake of fasting. I won't discuss more of it now, but I'm willing to do so uh, later if you'd like. Matthew five, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 36 now, he tells a parable. So Jesus told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a garment to patch, uh, t- tear, tears out a piece uh, out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the past from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. You Pharisees, you don't understand. You're drinking old wine. Uh, You got an old garment and it needs to be replaced with a new one. You can't take a new patch and just put it onto the old garment because what happens is it won't even match for one because the new garment, the old garment is going to be faded. And and, and if you put a new patch on it, the new patch is going to shrink when it's washed. And when it shrinks, it's going to rip the old garment. And and, and wineskins, of course, wine ferments and as it ferments, it expands. If you have an old wineskin, it's already expanded. So you put new wine in that old wineskin what happens when the wine ferments it expands and it bursts Jesus is saying look here's the thing your concern for your purity your concern that everyone obeys the law how do we obey the law how are we faithful to torah how do we remain pure in the midst of a pagan uh, uh, occupation in the midst of a pagan empire how do we remain pure to god's laws That's old. And it won't work in my kingdom. It's the old stuff. I'm bringing the new kingdom, the new teachings of the new kingdom, the new wine. And you need new wineskins to contain my new wine. It's this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Are you willing to leave everything and follow me? And the answer for them is no. And because the answer for them is no, Jesus is going to turn now And appoint some new disciples. One more conflict. Chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 16. Conflict over the issue of the Sabbath. Uh, Verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain. Rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you never read what David did? David's the king. What David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took the consecrated bread. He ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath day and the Pharisees were very concerned with purity. And here, the, the key to the Pharisees is this. is How do we remain faithful to the law in this modern world? Uh, The law was written 1,300 to 1,500 years ago. Times have changed. Cultures change. And so so what does the law mean? And you simple folk out there, you don't understand. So we Pharisees will tell you what it means. So one of the laws says, on the Sabbath day, you shall rest. You shall not do any work. And so the question becomes, well, what's work? Right? I mean, I've seen Christians have this debate, right? And and, uh, can I mow my lawn on the Sabbath day? Uh, can, can I go grocery shopping on the Sabbath day? You know, what's work? What's not work? And so we have all these rules. Well, this is work and this not work. The Pharisees had 39 categories of work. And each category had subsets of what constituted that. So, for example, you can't till the soil because that's planting and getting ready. For, so, therefore, on the Sabbath, that, that would be work. So you can't spit. Because if you spit on the Sabbath, you're turning the soil over. So, because you're turning the soil over, that's work. Seriously. Note, by the way, on one of Jesus' miracles, he spits and puts the saliva on a man's eyes and tells the man, go wash himself in the pool, all of which was illegal according to the Pharisees' interpretations of the law. So, the disciples are walking through a grain field and they pick kernels of corn, pick pick kernels of grain, which is harvesting, which is one of the 39 categories of, of violations of the law. You cannot harvest. And Jesus sort of says, wait a minute, guys. They're hungry. They're hungry. Don't you know what David did? And David's the king. So whatever David did was good and right. David went into the temple one day. His, him and his many men, the soldiers that he had in his army, they were hungry. And they went into the temple... And they took the bread that only the priest could eat. It's up on the it's up on the it's like 12 loaves of bread. Only the priest could eat it every week after after it's been done and it served its purpose there. The priest would take it home and eat it. It's only for the priest and David and his men ate it. Because are these laws just rules to be obeyed or is it for man and for us and for humanity? So he's questioning their interpretation of the Sabbath day. continues on, verse uh, 6. On another Sabbath he went into a synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. One of the things you're not allowed to do on the 39 provisions of work on the Sabbath day. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the other Pharisee, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. You can't heal on the Sabbath day. You see, the Pharisees had concluded that the only thing that you could do on the Sabbath day was to save a life. Right? But you can't actually do more than save a life. So in other words, you, you could like rescue the person, save their life, but that's it. So you, know, you can't care for the wounds or anything else and even if they might get an infection and die later on, that, you save their life. That's all you can do. And their opinion was, look, Jesus, the man's hand was withered yesterday and it will be withered tomorrow. You could have healed him yesterday or you can heal him tomorrow. And Jesus answers, I don't care. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had said, we decide what the the law means. And Jesus says, I decide what the law means. Leave everything and follow me. Because I am Lord of the Sabbath. And I decide that doing good on the Sabbath is fine. Then we're going to do good on the Sabbath. And now the conflict has reached its climax. Who has the right to interpret the law, the Pharisees or Jesus? So, the last passage, Luke 6, verses 12 through 16, Jesus calls his twelve. Why? Because he's given the leadership of Israel the chance to follow him, and they've refused. So now he's going to choose a new leadership in Israel, a new twelve. Come, follow me. Be my now, if you look at the list of disciples, you'll find some interesting things about them. What I've, I really appreciate about them the most is that, that they are just like us. We tend to idolize these guys as though they're heroes, but in all reality, they're fishermen. Not only are they fishermen, but one's a tax collector. Which means he is probably pretty wealthy and probably pretty keen, by the way. A, 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 good, a, 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 a person who has a great ability to, to discern people's character. Matthew, the tax collector. But alongside Matthew, the tax collector, meaning the one who works for Rome, it's another man named Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were Pharisees, but they went a lot farther than Pharisees. You see, Pharisees said, we're going to tolerate Roman rule, because we know if we don't tolerate Roman rule, Rome will just punch it, put us out of business. They'll destroy the temple, take away everything we think is sacred. But the zealots said, we cannot tolerate Roman rule. We must do everything we can to overthrow Roman rule. We call them terrorists. The Zealots were terrorists. The Zealots, were, their attitude was, only God should rule over our country and anyone else that tries to rule over God's country will be opposed at all costs. And they would literally kill them. They'd, they'd kill Roman soldiers and kill individuals and whatever. Uh, you know, Terrorists. So now you've got Jesus' company. You've got some tax collectors on the left, and you got zealots on the right. And I promise you folks, Matthew and Simon did not walk together for three and a half years. They had to have kept the it. Di- they do not like each other. They're, they're going to learn how to like each other. No, Jesus says, by the way, if you want to be my disciples, you must love one another. They're, they're going to know you're my disciples if you love one And by the way, I'm speaking to you, Matthew, and I'm speaking to you, Simon. You have to get along with these people. Because this is all you got. This is the new 12, this is the new Israel. And there's our message for us. We're all we got. We're different. We're diverse. We come from different backgrounds, different ages, different cultures, different contexts. And now let's get together. Because the way they're going to know who Jesus is, is if we love one another. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, we've asked the question who is this man? And the answer is he's the king. He's the king. He's the one who makes the rules, who decides what the Sabbath is and what the Sabbath isn't. He's the king. And he says, Now, to be a member of my kingdom, you simply have to follow me. Uh, allegiance is the word I like to use. Uh, becoming a Christian means that we give our allegiance to Jesus and nothing else. Beforehand, we gave our allegiance to ourselves or to our, our allegiance to our nation or to our state or to our money or to whatever else it might be. Now Jesus says, No, to live in my kingdom is to give allegiance to me. The only standard is that you leave everything and follow him. Now, let me give you three thoughts on what it means to be, I think, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Number one, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. And I mentioned at the beginning, discipleship is a process of becoming like Jesus in every aspect of our life. I'll put it this way on the slide. The discipleship is a process of becoming like Jesus Christ in our affections, our thoughts, and our behavior. All aspects. Our desires, our passions, our hopes, our dreams, uh, uh, our thoughts, and our behavior. All of which are now surrendered to Jesus and say, here I am, follow. That's a disciple. The re- religious leaders, of course, of Jesus' day were upset because Jesus was replacing Adherence to Torah, uh, adherence to the temple with Himself. I define Torah. I'm the temple. And they didn't like it. Second thing is, let's ask ourselves the question have we left everything to follow Jesus? What is it that we haven't left behind? What is it that we're not willing to leave behind? How do I become a disciple of Jesus and become more like Him? Follow Him. Discipleship in the Gospel of Mark is simply defined as being with Jesus. That's how It's being with Him. Following Him. Wherever He goes. So what is it that you have not let go of yet to follow Jesus? Third way of asking the question as a disciple is what old wineskins are we using to carry the new wine? What old wineskins are we using to carry the new wine? Remember, the Pharisees were the religious ones. And what religious people do is we define our religious things, our practices, our habits, our conduct, etc. We, we define them in religious garb and therefore we say, and that's, they're the right things to do. This is right. And let me give you five scriptures to support this is the right thing to do. And so oftentimes, the religious ones are the hardest ones to get through because we've religiously justified my beliefs, my thoughts, my actions, my desires, my passions, my preferences. And we've got them all, they're all theologically defended. And Jesus says, are you willing to follow me or not? Are you willing to leave it all behind and be my disciple or not? Now, it's important to understand one last thing, and that is this. To be a disciple of Jesus, we have a mission to accomplish. He goes on to say, from now on, you will be fishers of men. Fishers of people. Our task, then, is not one for ourselves only. Right? We in the Western world are very self-centered. And we've made the gospel some individual thing that we sell. You need this and buy this so that you can be saved we fail to recognize the gospel is about self-denial. Self-denial for the sake of the nations. That the nations might know who Jesus is because we love one another. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize our humanity. The flesh that we have has desires and passions that are not in accordance with the Spirit of God. We like security, so we hold on to possessions. Even though you told us to not lay up for ourselves on earth, but to lay up for ourselves in heaven. We like people to uh, respect us, so we guard our image and guard our person and we're not real and we're not frank and we're not honest with ourselves or even with a close group of people we guard our possessions because in them we think we have some measure of esteem and some measure of notoriety and we get some pleasures from them we guard our preferences because we don't want to change them that's why they're preferences we like them And you tell us to welcome all. So help us, Lord, to follow Jesus wherever you lead us. And as we get into chapter 6 next week, we're going to see the commands that you give us of what it means to be your disciples are beyond us because our flesh simply desires something else. And so you tell us, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and you'll give us rest. Because we're not asked to do these things by our flesh. We're not just adding Jesus to this, new, to this old wineskin that we have. We need new wineskins. So we come to you this morning, Lord, just contemplating this challenge. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And what are we holding on to that we don't want to let go of? So Lord, help us. I pray, Father, for those who are just becoming upon this journey of following Jesus, that they would find others within this congregation who are farther along in that journey and that they would form a discipling relationship where we can give and encourage others to follow along as we all journey together. We build relationships I pray, Father, for the women in this congregation that they would invite their friends to the if-gathering this next weekend. That they might learn what it means to follow Jesus. If this is true, then what does it mean? If we believe in the resurrection, then why are we holding on to all these things, Lord? They're all going to pass away, but the person who does the will of God lives forever. Help us to hold on to that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you've given to us now. We praise you for this day. In all things, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.